CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Well, it's already time for another Political Rewind, and we're very glad all of you could be with us for today's show. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, we're going to talk about voting and the election process uh, today, which has come under such intense scrutiny uh, in recent years. I, I was thinking about the fact, as, as I was preparing for this show, that I have to go all the way back, literally, to the last century, to a time when I, we all kind of innocently believed that the voting process was something that we could trust, have confidence in. We went to the polls, we cast our ballots, we waited for election returns, and uh, there were very few times, there are some times in history that were different, but very few times we didn't basically trust that our votes were counted and that the outcome of the election reflected uh, the will of the people who had cast ballots. Um, that all started to change in 2000, of course, in Florida, when we all watched the hanging Chad incidents of the Florida presidential recount, and then a Supreme Court, which decided to cut that process short and essentially declare a winner in that presidential race. And starting really with that, uh, it raised questions about the validity of our votes and if they were even being counted properly. Um, we have seen that accelerate over the years, especially in states like Georgia. Georgia's been ground zero for concerns about the technology we're using, about voter suppression, um, about the integrity of absentee uh, ballots. And even now, with about seven weeks to go till the elections, there are still a number of lawsuits in federal courts here in Georgia that are meant to influence how we deal with voting this year. So it struck us at Political Rewind that this is a, a subject we need to really dig into and talk about in great detail, and we've got just the panel to do that. First of all, Tamar Hallerman, the senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, my partner on Tuesdays, is here. Hi, Tamar. How are you? Hey, Bill. Doing well. How about you? I'm fine. I want a quick puppy report. Tamara, you adopted a you you adopted a pandemic puppy. How is she, your puppy doing, Tamara? <laughs> She's doing good, snoozing on the couch in her usual spot, hoping she'll be quiet while we're uh, live on air. <laughs> Just like our listeners, snoozing on the sofa while we try to do the show. I'm glad you're with us, uh, Tamara. We're also joined by uh, two reporters who have done uh, outstanding work covering all of the issues surrounding the elections this year and last year and even back to 2018. Stephen Fowler is our own uh, Georgia Public Radio election reporter. Stephen, thank you for being here today. Always a pleasure, Bill. There's always plenty to talk about. And you uh, quite often run into uh, Mark Nisi, who has been covering elections and election issues for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I think, Mark, since around 20. 17, that became the main focus of your reporting. That became your beat. Is that right? That's right. Voting rights and election administration has really taken over, and it demands a lot of coverage. 
absolutely. And uh, you, too, have really uh, kept us on top of an awful lot of what's going on. So thank you both very much for being here. And I'm really thrilled to welcome back to Political Rewind for the first time in far too long uh, our friend Todd Ream. Todd is a, a Republican political consultant on occasion, doesn't do as much of that as he did at one point, but he continues to be uh, the editor of Georgia Pundit, which is a wonderful daily newsletter that uh, gives us not just statewide news and, and some national news, but Todd, one of the things I've said to you on the show on a number of occasions is how much we enjoy the fact that you really give us news about local communities and the politics that they're dealing with. So, Todd, we're really thrilled to have you back and thrilled that you've said to me that as the election proceeds, you're all you're all for coming back every now and then. How are you doing? I'm, I'm great, Bill. Uh, thanks for having me back. I do want to say that I consider myself a recovering Republican political consultant. I'm not sure if the recovery <laughs> is needed on the Republican part or on the political consulting side. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm fairly retired. But thanks for having me back. Well, we're very, yeah, we're really happy you're back. All right. So um, let's get started. Um, I, I'll tell you what. I want to start by talking just a little bit about absentee voting, because this week, I believe I'm correct in saying, uh, Stephen, this is an important week. The Secretary of State is, in fact, starting to send out absentee ballots after to, to comply with requests that have already come in, and, and they're going out starting this week. Have I got that right, Stephen? That's right, Bill. We're almost 45 days out from the election, which is the time that the state starts sending out ballots to military and overseas voters, as well as people who have requested ballots ahead of the election. And several hundred thousand that are on a rollover list, they're people who requested an absentee ballot once, and uh, they get a ballot for the rest of the election cycle. Those are people who are over 65 or disabled, or are the military and overseas voters. And so, so far, we're probably getting closer to a million Georgians that have already requested an absentee ballot for this election. So by the end of this week, there'll be a million ballots going out in the mail to people all over the state and the world, myself included. Mark, it's interesting that despite the fact, as we all know, the president has been uh, complaining about fraud and absentee balloting, uh, the uh, Republican secretary of state is encouraging people to uh, uh, go ahead and uh, apply for absentee ballots. Let's listen to the spot that his office produced to encourage absentee voters. In light of COVID-19, Secretary Raffensperger is making it easy to request and obtain an absentee ballot for the fall. Once your application is approved, you will receive your absentee ballot in the mail. Go to SecureVoteGA.com to learn more. That's SecureVoteGA.com. Or call Georgia's Voter Protection Hotline at 470-312-2635. Pay for by Help America Vote Act. Um, what that means, Mark, is they got federal money to allow them to produce that spot. Am I correct? That's right. This spot and other advertisements are part of a statewide advertising campaign. Uh, the Secretary of State's office spent about $4 million in federal money dedicated for elections on this 
ad campaign, which they say is for the purpose of voter education. And the message they're really trying to get through is to try to get people to vote before Election Day. Um, that's when the most problems are most likely to occur if you get long lines of people waiting and lining up. So this ad campaign is encouraging both absentee voting and early voting, which starts on October 12th. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, thank you for pointing that out. There is a second commercial they're getting set to launch that does remind people that they can vote as of October 12th. And you know what's interesting about that, Todd? Uh, early voting is starting in many states across the country. We, I keep saying, oh, it's only seven weeks till Election Day. Campaigns are gearing up more than ever. But, Todd, uh, there, there are a lot of people who are going to the polls very soon and will cast their ballots in crucial races, including the presidential race. I believe there are people in Georgia who, who can go to the ballots today in the 5th Congressional District. Uh, if you're in those parts of DeKalb County, uh, Fulton County, and Clayton County that were formerly represented by the late uh, Representative John Lewis, I believe they're open to, to go in person now um, and certainly advanced vote, uh, the uh, mail-in advanced voting has already started. That's been confusing to a couple of, of friends and neighbors who asked me, what's, what's going on? Why am I going to the ballot? Why am I going to vote now? And I thought we were electing somebody to succeed Representative Lewis in, uh, in November. Uh, my, my ballot strategy was always to go in on Election Day. I feel that's a good way of learning how the election's going. Uh, this year, what I've done is applied for an absentee ballot filled it out, hung on to it, and I go on election day uh, to see what it looks like. And in the primary, uh, I waited in line for an hour. Nobody voted in that first hour of uh, being open. And so then I got back in my car, took my absentee ballot, and dropped it off in the uh, ballot drop box. I'm going to do that same. I did the same thing for um, the runoff, but I actually went in because nobody was there Everything was great. Uh, one of the best voting experiences I've had. And then in November, I'll have my absentee ballot. I'll try to vote in person. And if that's not going well, then I'll go turn turn in that absentee ballot. Um, Tamar, it's fascinating that, again, Raffensperger's encouraging absentee votes when the president says that'll just be a way for the Democrats to steal the election. Well, there's also some distinguishing that's been happening, though. You know, the president talks about mail-in voting more broadly. Uh, Raffensperger is talking about mail-in absentee, which is a slightly different category. And so I think there's a lot of confusion among voters in terms of what people want. And we were talking about this last week with Jimmy Carter and, and exactly what he said in his 2005 election report and, and that sort of thing. Um, one thing I heard, I was at a Republican event yesterday in, um, in Buckhead, was a, a Republican candidate urging people if they're concerned about their integrity of a mail-in ballot is to go and vote early, especially if it's an older crowd that's worried about getting exposed to COVID if they're waiting in long lines on election day. So I think you're going to see a lot of people encouraging that as well, especially on the Republican side if people are skeptical of, of mail-in ballots. Okay, so let's start talking about some of the uh, issues that still uh, lie in front of us between now and when people start uh, casting ballots. Um um, Mark, there are at least five, you point out in an article recently, at least five pretty significant uh, court cases still 
pending. You and Stephen, more than any of us, understand these issues, have been following them more closely than I. But is it fair to say that among those five, the one that that is is really uh, has the potential to be create a certain amount of confusion is the decision in federal court to allow uh, votes mailed in by the end, postmarked by the end of Election Day, to be counted if they are received within three days after the election. Is, is that what you would call one of the more significant cases? It's been appealed by the Secretary of State, but it certainly seems worthy of our, our discussion today. Absolutely. There are always ballots that arrive after Election Day in every election. And in previous years, Georgia state law has prevented those ballots from being counted. State law says that ballots have to be received by 7 p.m. on Election Day. However, a federal judge ruled that as long as they're postmarked by Election Day and received within three days afterward, they should be counted. So that has the potential to result in tens of thousands of additional votes being counted in the November 3rd general election. As you said, it is being appealed. We'll see how that goes. So it's really hard to know what voters should think about this at this point. I think the best path for voters is just if they do plan to vote absentee to get their ballots in early. Yeah. And I mean, uh, jumping off of what Mark said, you can get a ballot as soon as the end of this week. There are multiple ways you can return the absentee ballot. You can put it back in the mail. You can put it in a drop box like Todd mentioned, or you can take it directly to your county elections office and return it. So there's seven weeks before the election. You know, if you get it next Tuesday, that's six weeks. So you have six weeks to request a ballot, fill out a ballot and return it. And so there are, you know, you shouldn't have to worry or wait for a federal judge's deadline if you really want to make sure that you get that absentee ballot in. But, you know, there are several court cases going on that do muddy the waters. And that's why uh, people like Mark and I sit through tens of hours of hearings to help make sense of it all. Uh, Todd, uh, the concern, of course, we've talked about this on the show briefly, uh, is that uh, we may be waiting days if that if that ruling stands. And again, Raffensperger's office is disputing it. They're, they've appealed it up. But if it stands... There are questions as to how long it might be before we get results in some races. There's even this, uh, we now have a new term for it, uh, uh, the red mirage, the notion, Todd, that on election night, because Republicans are expected to vote in person more than Democrats, it could appear that in here in Georgia and in states across the country, uh, Trump has been reelected uh, when, in fact, as absentee ballots more more often from Democrats come in, uh, it could be a Joe Biden state. I, I don't know how realistic that is, but this notion of delaying counting does seem to open the door for lots of confusion, Todd. So I, I pulled some numbers uh, this morning and I looked at voting trends in the in the statewide primaries. And it doesn't appear to me that there were really significant, like, tidal wave kind of differences uh, between the voting patterns of Republican primary voters and Democratic primary voters. I had personally expected it. A lot of other Republicans had expected that. It didn't turn out that the patterns were that much different. Um, and so I, I'm, not, I'm not quite as concerned about that as I am about 
this question of scanner accuracy, uh, which the state elections board has been uh, changing the regs lately to tighten up what is considered a valid vote. The percentage of the circle that must be filled in um, has been changed. And I think that this issue of uh, of absentee ballots that this could that could be the hanging chat. That's what I'm more worried about is the counting of that from a couple perspectives. One is does the difference between 15% and 25% of the circle being filled in change the results of elections? The other is the human error that could be uh, potentially introduced. In Savannah, last week, there was a recount in a state house district. And during the recount, they forgot about a thousand absentee ballots. They sort of, they sort of said, okay, we've got it. We've got the recount done. And then came back and said, oh, we forgot about all those paper ballots. And the, the, the possibility of human error uh, with absentee ballots being scattered around the state the, and, and the way in which they're read, I think that has the potential for being 2020's hanging chat. So let's unpack some of what uh, Taja said. Tamar, uh, the state election board uh, this week voted – in terms of absentee ballots, well, we all know that you have an oval next to the candidate candidates. So you have to fill in that oval to cast your ballot. Uh, and the election board uh, said that if 10, I think it's 10 percent of the circle is the cutoff point. If you filled out less than 10 percent, they're going to fix the, They are going to reset the scanners so those votes won't count. There's a lot of controversy over that. If this is very much the hanging Chad uh, situation. What if we know the voters intention, if there's a check mark next to Donald Trump instead of an oval, should the ballot count? And the election board is saying no. Yeah, and, and it, it does set some sort of guardrails for officials in terms of, especially if the intent is not clear when they can start rejecting ballots. And and what you're hearing from um, Republican groups is, you know, at some point the voter needs to read what's in, um, you know, read the instructions. Um, you know, it's one thing if it's clear, even with a check or an X, who they're picking, that's one thing. But, it, but at some point the voter is responsible. And then you're hearing opponents saying, you know, no, this, this could be an opportunity for them to discard a lot of ballots. So that's certainly um, that's certainly going to be a huge issue going forward. And, and I wanted to just dovetail off something that, that Todd was talking about in terms of um, you know, we, this red mirage and, and we could be waiting a long time to, to hear about election results. And one thing I'm wondering, already with distrust running so high in the government and its ability to handle stuff like this, it, it could create the possibility for um, just a really tough couple of days with a lot of misinformation, with politicians declaring victory where there isn't one yet, distrust running high, If, if especially if Congress starts getting sworn in before there's a president. Um, you know, de- determined, and, and that could be really scary in terms of, of voter trust. All right, so there's so much to talk about here, and and frankly, um, you know, it's easy to keep uh, picking up little new threads that go off in various directions, But I, so I want to go back, if I may, Mark, to absentee ballots for a few minutes. Um, we expect, Mark, I assume, I mean, what, what kind of surge is the Secretary of State's office projecting? Do we have a, a, a kind of a general number of how many people, what percentage of people they think 
will vote absentee November 3rd's election? It's really hard to judge. The Secretary of State, Brad Ravensburger, has already said he expects turnout to likely exceed 5 million out of Georgia's 7.4 million registered voters. That would be about 68 percent total turnout, which would be pretty high. Um, How much of that will be absentee by mail is kind of a guess. You know, during the primary, it was 49 percent of the total voted absentee. I don't think it's likely that we'll get high that high during the general election because people, you do attract many voters who only come out for presidential elections who are more likely to vote the way that they're used to voting, you know, either doing in-person early voting or election day voting. Um, The Secretary of State's office said at one point that maybe we'll have about 1.5 million absentee ballots. Um, That sounds about like the right range. We had 1.15 million absentee ballots in the primary. I don't know if we'll actually get um, to 1.5 million, but maybe so. Um, The Secretary of State's office says they're getting about 5,000 absentee applications per day, and they're at 1 million so far. Okay, Stephen, with that in mind, we know that there were a lot of issues uh, in the primary with getting that huge surge of absentee ballots that came in, and there were many counties that said they had trouble uh, uh, processing those votes. So let's, let's do a primer here. When I vote absentee right here in my home just outside of the city of Decatur, greater Decatur, DeKalb County, if I send in my absentee ballot, where is that ballot going to be counted? So if you send in the absentee ballot, uh, it goes back to your county elections office. In this case, it would be DeKalb, and uh, it will be marked as received and accepted if there's no problems with it. You'll see that on your My Voter page. And then starting about two weeks and a day before the election, counties are allowed to start processing absentee ballots. So that means they open up the envelope, they check to make sure things are there, they insert them in the scanner, they do everything but count. So there's still no way of knowing, you know, outcomes of races before polls close on election day. But with the swell of absentee ballots coming in, some of these larger metro counties have even more time to be able to process the ballots, go through, you know, work on weekends, work on the other times so that when seven o'clock comes when polls close on election day, they don't have to then start the process of opening and tabulating and counting more than a million absentee ballots. So, you know, talking a little bit about the red mirage and other things, Georgia is actually better positioned than many other states because of that early processing of the absentee ballot. And when we think about absentee applications, the application process also goes through a similar thing. Maybe you got one in the mail. Maybe you're using the online portal. Uh, A part of the thing that Mark talked about with anticipating more ballots is the state's online absentee ballot portal. Uh, Before, people could submit paper forms or they could email it or do other things like that. But the online portal, uh, you can fill it out online ballotrequest.sos.ga.gov, and it goes into a centralized dashboard for your county officials to make it easy for them to process as well as easy for you to fill it out. I have a question for for Mark and Stephen. We mentioned a little bit at the top of the show that the Secretary of State is appealing the the big ruling on absentee ballots, allowing them to count anything that is postmarked uh, by election day that arrives three up to three days after the election. And I'm wondering what you're expecting from the courts at this point, because that might be the biggest ruling that we're going to get that can really affect outcomes here. 
It's so hard to tell because the case has been appealed. It is pending with the 11th Circuit, but a hearing hasn't been scheduled yet, and we're getting relatively close to Election Day. You know, we're seven weeks out. And so, you know, generally speaking, there's this principle that court cases should be decided in it advance of election day to avoid voter confusion. And the closer we get to election day, the more conservative the courts will be, meaning they'll be less likely to change the rules. Um, but then again, on the other hand, you can say the courts already changed the rules um, when the district judge extended the absentee ballot deadline. So maybe that's what um, needs to be addressed. And, you know, courts and judges always operate on their own schedule and do what they want. So we'll have to see how the 11th Circuit moves forward with this case. And, you know, like Mark mentioned earlier, this could maybe allow uh, 10,000, tens of thousands of more votes to cast. In the primary, I believe it was about 8,000 or so ballots that were rejected for coming in late. So in the larger picture, if we have a million and a half ballots come in, an extra 10,000 or 20,000 or so might not make a difference big picture, but in some of the close congressional races like the 6th District or the 7th District or some of the state house races that are contested, even the presidential race or, uh, you know, having every ballot counted is going to be crucial to both Republicans and Democrats. And so, uh, you know, everyone should have a vested interest in understanding how the absentee ballot process works if they choose to vote absentee. But there is also other options if you're not comfortable with that. Todd, I have a, a question for you. You know, Stephen mentions how a couple thousand votes could make a huge difference in, in some of, especially these state house races. And uh, obviously redistricting is on the table in the next legislative session. And Republicans lost a ton of seats in 2018 in this blue wave. So, so this election is even more important. Todd, what are you kind of looking at and what do you think are, are kind of the most crucial races that could be impacted by a couple hundred, a couple thousand votes? I think a couple of the big questions are um, a couple of the, the big races that we're looking at are going to be state house races in Metro Atlanta, where we saw turnover in uh, 2018 in some of those Atlanta suburbs like Roswell um, and Gwinnett County. And the question is going to be, are there going to be any Republicans still standing in North Fulton or in Gwinnett counties? For sure. Well, we are going to throw it to a quick break. More Political Rewind in a minute. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I was just yesterday, I pointed out on the air that this, yesterday we started week 26 of doing Political Rewind uh, while sheltering in place here at uh, my house. And uh, everything has gone very, very smoothly. We had a huge just power surge a minute ago. 
that knocked out all of our power here at the House. And uh, it's only been in the last about 30 seconds I've been able to get back to the show. Tamar, thank you. I, I caught the very end of um, your jumping in to host. Um, can I? So let me let me go back. <laughs> it's not that hard. Mark Nisi is with us. Stephen Fowler, you heard Tamar Hallerman and Todd Ream as well. We're talking, of course, about all the issues that we're dealing with leading up to the election. Uh, maybe you dealt with this while I was uh, away, but I'd like to go back to it because, Stephen, the last thing we, you and I talked about was the fact that um, that counties now have the ability to process absentee votes um, as they are coming in within a couple weeks of the election, which should make it easier uh, to get those votes counted by the end of Election Day. Uh, is, is, that, is that correct? Do we think they may not have the same problems in terms of a, a surge that will make it hard for them to get those results? That's right. I mean, if you look at uh, the way the pandemic has altered voting in our country. Uh, Georgia has actually been one of the states that's fared the best in adapting to it. Uh, the Secretary of State's office points to a study by the RAND Corporation that says Georgia was flexible. But you look at a lot of the things the state election board has done and that county officials has done and the Secretary of State's office has done to try to make it easier. You have these early processing times, which means counties won't be overwhelmed trying to run basically an in-person election and a vote-by-mail election. You've got these secure drop boxes that give people another contact-free way to deliver those ballots. You've got the online absentee ballot request portal that makes it easier for counties to handle it so we don't have another instance like Fulton County where people send in applications and they never got their ballot. So I think bigger picture, when you see these national stories and conversations about, oh, election week, oh, what's it going to be? Conspicuously absent from those lists is Georgia because of some of the new rules that the Secretary of State's office has kind of shepherded to put in place. I think that uh, one of the issues that we still have to uh, understand is going to be a considerable one is where we're going to be at in terms of the pandemic and where we're going to be at in terms of flu season. Because even if there aren't a lot of people getting sick from COVID, somebody who shows up with normal flu-like symptoms is probably going to be sent home. And between the absentee ballots and, and the feeding of the uh, little receipt slips of the new system, there's a lot of human input required in counting the votes. And I wonder if we're going to have some areas where they just don't have the people, the warm bodies, to, to fulfill all their responsibilities. Yeah. Um, I think all right. Thank you for adding. Yeah, go ahead. Right. I, I think Todd is right. I think we have to be real that while there have been improvements and that ballots can be processed early and more people are getting used to absentee voting and voting early, this election will take some time. You know, no matter how much efforts you make and how well many voters do, there will be a lot of people who wait until the last minute to vote and who do vote on election day. And results could take time to come in just because you do have to count those absentee ballots that come in near the deadline. And the reality is many people do turn in absentee ballots close to the deadline. And so those will have to be processed. And I have a question um, for Mark I, I apologize. 
Yeah, so Go I'm ahead, wondering, tomorrow. you know, after, after the June 9th primary, the Secretary of State's office and a lot of the, the counties that were administrating the elections were, were criticized for not having either enough poll workers or poll workers who, who were truly trained well how to deal with a lot of these issues that ended up propping up on primary day. Um, they, they've gone out of their way to kind of hire people, look for, for new people ahead of the November 3rd elections. Um, and, and I'm wondering what your sense is about kind of the level of how they're being trained and, and if something happens, as Todd mentioned, with the flu or there could be another kind of big wave of COVID cases, um, how ready the state is for that at this point? Well, I would say, you know, there are a lot of takeaways from the June 9th election that counties are doing. Uh, we've seen a flood of poll worker applications of people interested in uh, being a poll worker in the election after there being some shortages. We've seen counties have to adapt to have fewer voting machines out to space them out further to keep people spaced away from each other. That uh, That's still something to think about with regards to lines. And we've seen the state use money from the federal government to help counties with purchases of masks or purchases of hand sanitizer. And so, you know, the there's still PPE and other things that you would have to think about, uh, especially for a larger turnout. But I think uh, Mark has... Uh, reported a lot on what poll worker training looks like a little different. So I'll let him explain uh, the poll worker side of things. Sure. The biggest difference for poll worker training is that when coronavirus really hit in March, everything went online. Uh, poll workers were did take an online course, but they didn't have much, if they were new, they didn't have much hands-on experience. And that contributed to difficulties on Election Day on June 9th. If you know, you can take an online course, but if you haven't actually practiced setting up a machine or plugging it in or making sure you have the voter access card encoder turned the right way, there's a lot of things that can go wrong when you just watch a webinar compared to doing something in person. So in-person training has resumed and is happening across the state. It's already happened in many, if not all, counties. So thousands and thousands of poll workers are already either being trained or retrained. And even those poll workers who did have in-person training last December or last January, you know, they're getting refresher courses. So I do think that'll make a big difference. If you know how to work the equipment, it's much more likely that you'll have problems with it. Mark, also, uh, we know that on June 9th, there were uh, uh, problems, technological problems with some of the computers. Some, of course, as you point out, had to do with training of poll workers, but there are also problems with some of the machines themselves. And Raffensperger's office got some pretty heavy criticism for not having enough technology folks, enough techs, to be able to go to a polling place and resolve what was happening. Uh, he is. They are now going to be techs in virtually every precinct in the state. Is that basically right? That is right. And um, the goal, a goal that I think they're going to reach, is that they will have a technician in every precinct. So that should also help a lot, um, especially when polls open. You know, 7 a.m. in the morning is when problems are most likely to occur. Once you get everything going, usually it keeps going. But if you have, if poll workers have a problem getting started in the morning, it can just create an avalanche throughout the day of lines that never get cleared. So that should ease a lot of those 
problems getting all the machinery working correctly. I, I want to go, we're going to have to take a break in a sec, but before we do, I want to, and if, and I apologize, please stop me if you address this while I was uh, cut off of the show for a minute there. Um, I want to talk briefly about the uh, court hearing that uh, both both uh, Stephen and, and Mark attended uh, with Judge uh, uh, Totenberg in the past week. Uh, this was, who are the, the plaintiffs in this case, Stephen, you'll correct me if I don't have this right, uh, among other things, they continue to argue that we should not be voting on the computer machines that are now in place across the state. They believe that there are problems that with, with scanning the ballots correctly, that they're not secure, and they wanted hand balloting. Totenberg eventually ruled that it was too late in the process to throw out the machines, but she did think that every, she was, we, we, she, she gave an indication she may re, uh, rule that every precinct should have paper copies of all the voter information uh, right at hand to speed voting. Is that, do I have that right, Stephen? Pretty much, yeah. This has been a three-year-long court case that originally, uh, had to do with the 6th Congressional District special election, and it's kind of evolved into this omnibus case about Georgia's election system. Um, there have been several rulings against switching to hand-marked paper ballots, but uh, at the same time, the judges said the state has buried their heads in the sand and kind of chastised them for how they've been running elections and doing election security. At the end of 2019, the judge ruled that, you know, after 2019, no more DRE, direct recording electronic machines. The state said, okay, fine, we're getting a new system anyway, but that system's being challenged now. And so uh, basically what the plaintiffs want is they want to ditch the ballot marking devices, use hand-marked paper ballots that you fill out yourself at the poll and put into the scanners that are part of the new system. And the other piece of it is that, uh, you know, some of the problems that emerged were with people showing up to the polls uh, that had requested an absentee ballot but didn't vote one. And so poll workers would have to call the county office, say, you know, did Bill Nygut vote, yes or no, and it caused some of the lines. So one of the remedies could be having more updated lists of who's already voted at every polling place for November. I'm just going to say that that, uh, that adds a, another logistical twist because I think what you've got to do is you can't start printing those paper lists if that ends up being required until Friday night before the Tuesday election, because you have to process everybody who has voted in person uh, through 7 p.m. or whatever time it is on Friday in early voting so that the people at the, uh, at the polling places can say, oh, no, Mrs. Mr. Jones, I'm sorry, you already voted. Um, or that you didn't. And the other issue is going to be if they do go to paper ballots at some point, how do they ensure that they cancel uh, ballots of people who show up on election day who had received an absentee ballot in the mail and may or may not have returned it? Are you going to have to go back and pour through hundreds of different paper lists to make sure that there's no uh, no scratch outs of somebody who uh, who's absentee ballot should have been canceled. And I really, I really am fearful of what could happen if we end up relying on a lot more paper on election day in Georgia. 
Uh, Tamara, before we get to a break, one thing that I think is interesting about the cases that Amy Totenberg has heard over the last couple of years on the machines, the integrity of computer voting, is that she has never once said that she thinks the plaintiffs are wrong to believe that the computer systems that the state of Georgia is using uh, are vulnerable uh, in one way or another, either to being hacked or to creating problems uh, in the way votes are tabulated. She's always said, uh, we can't do anything at this stage. It's uh, too late in the process. She's sort of, I think I'm right in saying, and maybe Mark or Stephen can correct me tomorrow, but she's basically kind of said she understands there are issues. It, it, it's just for in every case she's ruled, it's been a timing matter. Yeah, and as Mark and Stephen were mentioning a little bit while you were gone, as we get closer and closer to the election, it's going to be less likely that, that a judge like her is going to be willing to overhaul um, election law in Georgia. All right, let me get to our final break of the show. When we come back, I want to ask the panel about issues that were getting so many headlines, both here in Georgia and nationally, uh, in 2018, and talk about where we stand with them in 2020. We'll do that after these messages. Tamara Hallerman, Stephen Fowler, Todd Ream, and Mark Nisi join me as we talk about election issues on this edition of Political Rewind. All right, Mark, uh, so some of the things that were getting the most headlines in the 2018 election cycle, and they haven't gone away since then, are among them these. Uh, voter suppression based on a variety of factors, uh, either eliminating voters from the voter rolls because of uh, their inactivity as voters uh, for a period of time, uh, exact match where a signature from a registration card doesn't match exactly the voter's card uh, at, at the polling place and others. Where do we stand in terms of voter suppression issues in the 2020 election cycle? Well, sure. Um, first, we can talk about what has changed since 2018 and then talk about what mm -hmm. issues are remaining. Um, a lot changed since 2018. The biggest change is the new voting system. That was a huge debate in 2019, and it replaced our digital voting machines with this touchscreen and printed out paper ballot system. In addition, there are new rules allowing voters more time and outreach from county election offices to fix problems with their, with their absentee ballots. Um, so voters have to be contacted and given an opportunity to correct errors and prove their identity, um, provide their driver's license. Um, you mentioned signature match. That's part of that process. If there's a signature discrepancy on your absentee ballot, you can correct that issue. County election officials will let you know that how to um, prove that you are who you say you are and have your vote counted. But despite those changes, there are still a lot of concerns about voter access to the polls. And those include um, voters whose registrations have been canceled, either because they moved away or because they haven't participated in elections for a number of years. It also includes polling place closures and accessibility. It includes problems that we saw in 2018 with voters who showed up at the polls only to find that election day computers didn't show they were registered for one reason or another. It includes um, 
how to cast your ballot, the trustworthiness of these new voting machines. While they do produce a paper record, um, in the lawsuit we've been talking about, they say the plaintiffs say that paper record isn't trustworthy because it's created from a computer that could potentially be hacked or have problems with it. So anything to do with voter access and difficulties voting is going to be an issue that's fought over this year. And perhaps I left out the most important one of all, which is long lines. We saw that in the primary where people in some precincts had to wait for hours to get to the front of the line. And inevitably, when you have to wait that long, some voters are going to quit and go home and they'll make the calculation that is it really worth waiting to be able to vote. And so that's an issue as well. And that said, election officials are trying to address many of these issues. There are more polling places opening up, more early voting sites opening up, and a lot of efforts to encourage people to get their votes in. Stephen, organizations like Fair Fight uh, and other uh, voter integrity groups would perhaps take issue with what I'm about to say, but it does seem as if the state, based on what Mark just said, has, has in fact cleaned up at least some of the major problems that uh, we were dealing with in 2018, although I'm sure there's a ways to go. Uh, is that a fair statement? It depends on who you ask, and it depends on how you look at it. For the vast majority of Georgians, it is easy to vote the way that you want to vote. You know, we have 159 counties with 159 elections directors and 159 different situations of how things are run at the local level. Um, there have been some macro improvements that uh, make it easier, like Mark mentioned, you know, with more polling places being added in metro areas and with uh, some lawsuit settlements and other things like that. But uh, there, is, there are still plenty of barriers to the ballot for people. And uh, the, the state's position is that elections are run locally, but the state is ultimately responsible for, uh, you know, helping those counties run elections. And so you can say, yes, there's three different ways to vote. There's early, there's absentee, there's election day. You can say, oh, we've added polling places. Oh, there's these things. But the reality is for many communities and the metro Atlanta area and across the state, there are still barriers uh, physical uh, or, you know, metaphorical that make it hard for some groups to vote. And so what groups like Fair Fight and others have done and what the state has even done in, in, in recent years is to try to meet those voters and to uh, make it easier or, or make people more aware of all the changes that are made. Todd? I, I think that uh, one of the things that I would say is, is that I don't believe it, it currently takes any actual problems for people to have a reason to continue complaining about election procedures. And I'm not just saying this about Fair Fight Action and, and the Stacey Abrams affiliated groups, but this has become a big money machine on a number of sides uh, where you have the lawyers who are taking it to court, you have fundraising machines to pay for the lawyers and to pay for uh, these get-out-the-vote efforts. I, I recently have seen uh, some mail pieces that were among the most sophisticated I've ever seen that are, you know, $5 a piece mail pieces. 
And the fact that we could take care of all of these problems and have a perfect voting system, but there are still going to be people out there in these third-party organizations that have a financial incentive to cast out on everything and to continue litigation and, uh, and fundraising. I have a question since we've been talking about Fair Fight and Stacey Abrams' organization. After uh, the, the 2018 gubernatorial race, you know, her group filed a, a giant lawsuit, an omnibus lawsuit, kind of challenging from top to bottom Georgia's voting practices. And I wanted to ask Stephen and Mark about kind of what the status of that is. You know, we've talked about how these federal judges don't necessarily want to do something like a giant overhaul right before the election. But what's the status of that? And is that something that's still up in the year that might stretch into next year even. Absolutely. So that case is very much alive and well, but it's a really big case, and it probably won't come to trial until next year because it's challenging everything about Georgia's election system, from poll worker training to voter registration to voter cancellations and purges to polling place locations and much more, absentee ballots, provisional ballots, everything. And so that case is ongoing. It's not one where we'll go we're going to have a decision before November 3rd. However, Fair Fight Action has said that that case could be a jumping off point to challenge procedures on on or in advance of election day if there are problems, if they need to ask for court intervention to continue counting more ballots, for example, they could use that case as an avenue to file motions for preliminary injunctions. Yeah, and when you look at these omnibus lawsuits, uh, there are, uh, you know, Mark and I could write long stories about any piece and part of these things. And when you think about the role that the courts play in elections, the courts, uh, the, the, a federal judge is not going to just say, you know, I, I ruled that Georgia is going to have a completely new election system now. There has to be specific remedies and there have to be specific pieces that are challenged. But like Mark mentioned, when you have all of these different things in your arsenal there, if something egregious or blatant does pop up, it's a jumping off point. I mean, fair fight when there was the voter purge or whatever you want to call it in 2019, they filed a lawsuit to try to block that. And what specifically got changed was they did the math and found that there were 20,000 people that weren't technically supposed to be removed yet because of the way the math of how uh, the calendar works for how long you have to be inactive before it's removed. And so the courts are a powerful tool in holding elections officials accountable. But, you know, the, the end goal is not completely overhauling thing all in one fell swoop. All right. Stephen Fowler gets the last word on today's Political Rewind. Thank you, Stephen, for uh, joining us today. Tamar Hallerman, thank you for being with us. Todd Ream. Enjoyed having you back again and hearing your voice on the show. And Mark Nisi, uh, to you, I, th I thank you and Stephen for doing such a great job keeping us informed on how the election process is unfolding. Uh, before I leave you today, uh, just a thank you, an extra thank you to Tamar Hallerman and Stephen Fowler. Sam Burmes-Dawes tells me that when my uh, power went out, you two just picked up the show and ran it. Uh, seamlessly. So perhaps I should just turn it over to you and it's time for early retirement. But no, I don't think I'm going to do that. That's it for today's show. We're back again tomorrow with a new Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Until I see you, remember, take care. Please stay healthy. Wear a mask. 
and get a flu shot. See y'all tomorrow.